0: Good morning. Last week was my introduction to the book of Hebrews, and this week it is the author's uh, introduction to the book of Hebrews. I probably should put your minds at ease uh, that you don't have to call home and turn down the roast. Um, We're not going to be doing a thorough exposition of all of these verses in these two chapters, although I would have to tell you, ideally, if this were to be preached in the best way, all two chapters would be dealt with at the same time. I think that is the thrust of the argument of this section, but as you can tell, I'm going to wimp out and only do the first four verses of this. I uh, I am reminded as I uh, come to this introduction of a friend of mine named Fred Smith. He was born into a Baptist preacher's family, and uh, they did not have a lot of resources, and he did not have a lot of opportunities, and the long and the short of it is he never went to college. He is probably or was probably the most educated man I've ever known in spite of that, so educated in fact that he was asked to speak to the graduation assembly for Harvard University. And what makes me chuckle about that, and what made him chuckle about that, was that the president's secretary, in getting ready for this, uh, calls up Fred and says, uh, we we want to have your robe ready. What are your academic colors? Well, Fred had to inform them that he had none, and, uh, and even offered to let them off the hook if they found that uh, offensive enough that they didn't want him to speak. As I remember him telling the story, he said that he wore a choir robe when he spoke, which is, I think, very appropriate. Why should we listen to someone speak? (laughs) That's what usually introductions are about, isn't it? Sometimes I really get tired of them. Uh, They tell us about all the accolades and whatever, and, and my theory is just stand back and let her blow and see what happens and and in this instance the author is telling us why we need to listen to Jesus and uh, and it is a marvelous section so i want you to uh, to take a look at it with me but before we do i want to give you an overview of the argument of the first two chapters and when we come to uh, the end of uh, uh, several messages and and uh, and have covered the last of chapter 2 I want to come back to this, but I do want to give you at least a sense of the argument. I've chosen to title this section, chapters 1 and 2, The Son of God and the Sons of God. Now, you won't exactly find the expression, the Sons of God, but if you're familiar with that expression from the Old Testament, you know that, for example, in the book of Job, that expression is clearly used with reference to angels. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 6 and you see that the daughters of men were intermarrying with the sons of God, there are some of us who would take that to be angelic beings and there are some who would not. But but the term the sons of God, at least in a number of instances, are a reference to the angels. So if you look at this chapter and as if, as you listen to Leonard read it, you will notice that the theme of angels is throughout the first two chapters. And, and I think it's very important to take note of that. So when you look at the breakdown of it, we're going to deal with verses one through four. God has spoken in his son. And then that moves into, uh, Well, let me just do one verses 1 and 2, the first part of 2. The Son is God's full and final word to men. And then verses 2b through 4, He is the one who is above all. Jesus is above all. And in particular, in this context, verse 4, He is above the angels. So the remainder of this chapter is going to take up this theme of being superior to the angels, and he's going to document his case in verses 4 through 14. He's going to document his case with Old Testament texts which show the supremacy of the Son over angels. We'll talk more about why the interest in angels uh, next time, but he is higher than the angels. Now, when you get to verse uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, my goodness, did I? Uh, yes, I've got it there, 2, 1 through 4. That's where he starts his exhortation. Now, he's not done with it, but he starts that exhortation. Actually, we would have expected, I would have expected, and, and if I were preparing this chapter, I would have put verses 1 through 4 right after verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 because he's talking about God speaking fully and finally through his Son, and therefore we ought to be taking heed to that word. So the exhortation comes at the beginning of chapter 2, but then he immediately moves again to the subject of angels. But here's my point. In 2, 1 through 4, you have the sort of breaking point. Before that, the Son is higher than the angel's now he picks up the theme the sun became lower than the angels and so if you look at that whole section chapters 1 and 2 it's sort of the whole spectrum of salvation God has spoken through His Son. He has revealed His Word in human flesh. It's talking about the incarnation of our Lord. And through His incarnation, our Lord now can bear the sins of the world. So it's really a summation of the salvation that God has brought about through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God and the sons of God. Now let's talk for a moment about the characteristics of these four verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Something you would not notice from any of your English translations is that this is one fairly long sentence, not the longest in the New Testament. But it is all one sentence in, in, the, in the original text. And, and therefore, it's a little awkward for me to stop in the middle of the author's sentence. And that's why I've opted to go through verse 4. The, the other thing that would not be immediately noticeable to us is, as a French a scholar has noted, this is the finest sentence in all of the New Testament. It's the finest sentence. Now, you could say that in the sense of its content, and you would be absolutely right. Would you not agree? What better things could be said than things pertaining to Jesus? And what better things could you say of Jesus than the things that have been said in these verses? It is good stuff. But it's not just what is said. It is how it is said that this particular author and many others are saying. By the way, I was listening to Dr. Johnson's tapes on this, and he said, this is a sonorous verse. Man, did I hit my dictionary. (laughs) I've never heard that word before. But you know what it means? Well spoken. Yes, that's what everybody else is saying too. It is artistically crafted. There, There is, in the way this is done, you guys that are into computers and programming, a friend of mine used to talk about elegance. There are some of us who are just hacks. In fact, there are some of us, me in particular, who's worse than a hack. But, you know, if we get it done, it's just barely and it's messy. There are other people, when they do it, it is just beautiful. That's the way it is with the way this sentence has been written. It is good material and it has been written in the most elegant way. It has been written in the most elegant style of that day. So that when a a reader, uh, the, the first readers read this and they understood what excellent writing was about, they would have said, this is good stuff. So, frankly, I find this text depressing. If you want to know the truth, I find it depressing. Not because of what it says about Jesus. But what does a preacher do with content that is so good you can't improve on it, and it's said so well, I just want to stand up and say, me too. And Just leave it alone. And it's like, all you'll do is just mess it up if you try to do anything with it. But here it is in front of us, and we need to, of course, pay attention to that. So it begins, as you can see, uh, by a declaration that God has spoken in these last days by His Son, and then He gives the qualifications, as it were, for that Son and why it is that we should hear His words. So let's look first of all at verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. God has spoken to us by His Son. It's a little unfortunate, and I've I've looked at the other translations but forgotten, but it is unfortunate to me in the one that I have that it it says that God in various ways has spoken through the prophets, but he has spoken in the Son. It's exactly the same preposition. So it it seems to me that if we were doing it right, we would have said, he spoke to us in the prophets and in the Son because he's trying to play those two off with each other. Primarily, I think these verses can be understood in contrast because that's the way the text is set up. So on the one hand, you have God speaking in times past. Let's call that, for, the, for lack of better terms, the Old Testament. God has spoken. In the Old Testament, now there were other things that were revealed, no doubt, in Old Testament days that are not recorded. But for us, for those readers, the things they would have in their hands would be the things that God has revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures in the past. Now, he says, God has spoken to us in these last days. And now he contrasts the two. He spoke to the fathers in times gone by, but now he speaks to us. This is what he has revealed to us. He spoke to the fathers through the prophets. He spoke. He speaks to us through Son, through his Son, through, obviously, the Lord Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke for God, But I don't know how anyone can read these verses without saying Jesus speaks as God. Yes, yes, there is a sense in which he is the revelation of the Father to us. He speaks for the Father, but he speaks as God. That's very different than the Old Testament prophets. He spoke in various ways and times. Let your mind just go through the Old Testament and think of the ways in which God revealed himself in his plan, he speaks to Moses in the burning bush. He speaks to to Moses and Israel from the mountain. And, and, and as we saw in the in the worship time, you know the, the 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 smoke and the fire and all that stuff going on. He even spoke through Balaam, and more than that, he spoke to Balaam through that donkey. God spoke in many different ways, in many different portions. And I, I guess what I'm saying is, God therefore spoke piecemeal. He gave his revelation a piece at a time, and it built. We would call that the doctrine of progressive revelation. It built up. But I call this, maybe I should not, but I call this the big bang theory of of revelation. Isn't that what we see? When Jesus came, God spoke with full authority. He spoke At one time, and he said all that needs to be said. That's the point. Yes, God was speaking in the Old Testament days. It was looking forward. The Scripture says that those were shadows of the things to come, and this writer is going to talk about some shadowy things. But he always takes us to where they're heading, and that is related to Christ and his work. Various ways and times, one way, through the Lord Jesus Partial and preparatory Old Testament, full and final, the revelation of God through Jesus. A couple of comments. One, there is unity as well as diversity here. This is not a put-down of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was God speaking to men just as the New Testament is God is God speaking to men. The difference, the contrast is in who is speaking and the finality of what is said. But don't look at this as though the author is saying, don't pay any attention to that Old Testament stuff because this author, it's a little hard to tabulate, but, but some, maybe many would say, this author quotes the Old Testament more often than any other New Testament author. Don't think he disrespects the Old Testament. He does not. He is showing us that the Old Testament was looking forward, but it always looks forward to that which is full and complete in the Lord Jesus. It says that he has spoken to us in these last days. The temptation, especially of the skeptic, would be to say, he ought to have checked his watch. (laughs) 2,000 years is a long time. But what, what's being said by this expression? It, it's an expression that has an Old Testament definition, and, and by and large what it means is the last days are those days that begin with the first coming of Christ, and they complete with His Second coming. So in that sense, the last days are all those days from the coming of Christ until the fulfillment of all of his purposes. So don't blame the writer to the Hebrews for somehow being wrong on his timing. Third comment. When we look at God speaking through the Lord Jesus, it would be a mistake to think that he is only speaking by the words which Jesus spoke. Now, that is certainly true. Do not mistake anything I've said uh, in that way. In in the Gospel of John, Jesus says on multiple occasions, I do not say anything of my own initiative. I only say that which the Father has given me to speak. But my point is, he not only uh, speaks that, He personifies it. Jesus personifies God. And therefore, it is all that he does. It isn't that Jesus just says, uh, I am the light of the world. He gives sight to a man born blind, something that had never happened before in history. His works, as well as his words, are God's revelation through the Son. All right, now let's talk about the uniqueness of the Son in the second part of verse 2 through verse 4. And the question really is this, isn't it? God has spoken through his Son, and the world is standing out there today saying, So what? So lots of people have spoken. Lots of people have claimed to reveal something from God. What is so special? What is so unique about Jesus? I'm glad they asked in their minds because that's what the writer is really saying to us. Here's why we ought to listen to Jesus. Now, think about this. This is just an analogy, but let's suppose that we have a job that needs to be done and the job is the job of Messiah, being Messiah. And now you have job descriptions and job qualifications. And so if you look at this text and you say, these are the qualifications for one who will be God's Messiah, then I think what you're going to conclude, as I do, there's only one person that fills this job, and that person is our Lord Jesus himself. Look at what it says about this. He is the heir of all things. Now that's looking forward, would you not agree? That's looking into the distant future, or at least it was for the author, maybe not so far for us. It's looking ahead, and you see in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 3, you see that all things are coming to their consummation. They're coming to a head. They're coming together in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about after death, the last enemy is defeated. Then everything will be subjected to the Son. Psalm 2 verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. It may well be that he's speaking with reference to that in other texts. But the bottom line is, he is the heir, is he not? He is the one who inherits it all. And the good news for us is we are joint heirs with Him. Everything, uh, well, I'm not sure I'm willing to say everything, but, but, but what He comes to possess and, and to exercise His authority over is that in which we share as we reign with Him and we partake of His inheritance. B. He is the creator of the universe. You will notice, I think in Leonard's translation, it said the creator of the worlds. Uh, Some translations would, would, I think, are a little narrow in the sense that they tend to speak of this world in which we live this place, the inhabited world, and actually, there's another u- word that's used for that later on in Hebrews. but it's not that world word, it's it's the it's the word that gives us the sense that he's created the universe. He's created all of it. So the things in which uh, to which the son is an heir, the things which he will possess, are the things that he made. Isn't that right? They're his because he made them. So he is the creator. And you see that a a number of places. Colossians chapter 1, he is the creator of this world. John chapter 1, he is the creator. In the beginning was God, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and nothing was made but what he made it. He is the creator of the universe. By the way, if you can read these verses and conclude Jesus isn't God... You're reading them in a different way than I am. This job description is one that only God himself can fulfill. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. Now, this is an interesting word that is used because it's capable of meaning reflection as well as uh, the, 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 the source itself. When we look at the sun and we see the, the the light and the heat that flows from it, the source is the sun. And we may be looking at the moon and we may be seeing the reflection of of the light off of the moon, but that's that's something else. My point is that Jesus has this glory in Himself. It is not a glory that is totally separate from Him, but He as God has this glory, and it radiates forth from him. Remember, in in John chapter 1, the writer says, we beheld his glory. His glory. John chapter 17, give that glory to me that I had with you, for I came. It's his glory, and the glory of the Father as well. D. He is the manifestation of the Father's essence. He is not just like the Father. He is of the very same substance as the Father, in the same way that a biological son would be of the substance of his Father. So our Lord Jesus Christ is God himself. Distinct, obviously. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. He is distinct but he is of one essence with the Father, and that the author wants us to understand clearly. Now he says he is the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. I wondered when I saw that, I thought, you know, it seems like the writer got this kind of mixed up. Why didn't he say he was the creator B and he was the sustainer C? (laughs) Wouldn't that kind of go together like it does in Colossians 1? He's talking about In those first descriptions, the essence, the character, the makeup of our Lord Jesus. Now he talks about him, I think, in terms of his hands upon the world in this present day. The sustainer of all things, note, by his powerful word, the one who spoke, let there be light. Is the one who now, by his word, sustains all of creation. Now, when I look in Matthew and I look in the Gospel of Mark and I see a description of the Great Tribulation, remember, and it talks about the, 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 the sun and the stars and stars will fall and, and, and no more light and whatever, and you're thinking, whoa, here's the way I understand that in light of this verse, the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. The unbelieving world has been telling God, pardon my expression, to get lost. Is that not right? Get, get out of my face. Don't talk to me. I'm going my own way. In the great tribulation, God says, you've been asking for something for a long time. So I'm going to give you a little. I'm going to give you what the world would be like apart from my sustaining power and grace. I'm just going to let things go. And you're going to say, whoa, please turn it back on, whatever it was. I don't like that at all. F, he accomplished cleansing for sins. It actually says after he accomplished the cleansing for sins. But you've got to be thinking about this in terms of these original readers. They are reading this through Old Testament eyes. They're reading it in the light of what we're going to see later on in Hebrews where the priests, (laughs) they never sat. There was never, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. (laughs) Certainly not reclining chairs either. There were no chairs. Why? Because they were always working. There was no final settlement for sin. But this text says, when... Jesus came, He accomplished the cleansing for sins. That's why the next expression can say, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You sit down when you're done with your job. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which He's still at work, but He's not at work in making propitiation, paying the price for the penalty for our sins. That he has done, and Hebrews tells us clearly he did that once for all, distinct from the way the Old Testament uh, priests offered sacrifices day after day, year after year. He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? Well, that is a place of honor. Remember (laughs) The, the two disciples who said through their mother, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand? In effect, that meant, I want to be prime minister, or I want to be one of the big Jesus in your thing. That was the place of power. It was the place of prominence. And that place is reserved, of course, for our Lord Jesus. It's also the place of influence, is it not? And therefore, he's setting the stage. Not only has he paid the price for the sins of men... But he now sits exalted because of his death and his burial and resurrection. He now sits exalted at the Father's right hand. As the writer's going to say, all things haven't been subjected to him yet. But he's sitting there, and now he is conducting his high priestly ministry. So all of this is going to be taken up later in the, in the book of Hebrews. Conclusion H, verse 4. He is superior to the angels. Now, that's where I tell you, I would not have written it this way. But what you see taking place is that the author is trying to make a point. And in effect, the point is verse 4. You can't stop at verse 3. I I tried, but you can't. It's the middle of the sentence, and and the point isn't made. The point is, therefore, he is superior. The Son of God is superior to the sons of God, the angels of God. And he is superior in the sense that in all those things that he is and in all those things he has accomplished, he has achieved for himself a name, a reputation above anyone else. And therefore, he is superior to the angels. Now I said, I would have gone right to chapter 2 and verse 1 and started making application. The writer wants to work this point harder. And he is going to say, now we need to talk about angels more. And so the verses that follow, chapter 1, verse 4, or 5, through verse 14, are now going to come with a whole barrage of texts to document from the Old Testament the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ and his superiority to the angels. He will make application in 2, 1 through 4, And then he's going to pull this switch on us and he's going to take us to now the sun becomes lower than the angels by taking on humanity. And in the process of doing that, he comes to help men. And one of the ways in which he is superior to angels, the writer will say, is he didn't come to help angels that way. He only came to help men. He is greater than they are. That's going to be the point of the entire section. Now let's talk about some conclusion and application. And and I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm cheating. Did you get that? I'm cheating because that is not what Hebrews does. The conclusion, if we we were to be honest with this, I would stop right here and I would simply say, Jesus is superior to the angels. And I'd stop and I'd sit down and I'd go home and so would you. Some of you would say, that's not a bad idea. Look at that clock. I'd say, that's about right. Well, not quite, almost. He makes his application, as he will, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we should listen. But only after he has made this point very clear, this one who speaks, God often spoke through his messengers, the angels. But the revelation he has through the Son, his ultimate messenger, is vastly superior, we'd better listen to it. So I'm going to make a few uh, comments uh, that are sort of conclusions, but cheating at that. First, this is a great introduction. This is a great introduction. I mean, I know that sounds almost insipid for a preacher to be commenting on the quality of the Scripture, but think about it. They're powerful words. They're aptly written. I mean, the message is just supreme, And it is said in a way that is magnificent. The purpose of of an introduction is to get our attention. Folks, if this hasn't got your attention, something's wrong. Something's wrong. This ought to just make us sit up on our chairs and say, Whoa, we know what's coming because these are the topics that become the dominant subjects that he's going to play out through the rest of the epistle. We know the theme of the book, which basically has to do with revelation that comes through the Son and redemption that comes through the Son. And so what we have is the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, and we are to abide in Him and abide in His Word so that we will endure and persevere to the end. I guess that means we've got good reason to study this book. I think in general terms, we come to Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, and we say, this is a good documentation for the importance of the Word of God in in its general sense. Old Testament and New It certainly is. But would uh, would you not agree with me that in the author's purpose, he is most certainly saying to us, not just generally, you ought to be in the Word. Is he not saying to us specifically, you ought to be in this word. You ought to be in this book. Is it hard? You bet. But you ought to be here. That's because the one who has spoken is the ultimate son of God. A couple of points. Jesus Christ is the full and final word. He is the last word from God. Therefore, when people come with revelation, quote-unquote, that they would put on a par with Scripture. I'm not saying God doesn't speak in, in some ways to people, but but no more Scripture. <laughs> you would be saying, in effect, if you're looking for future revelation, what you're saying, in effect, is the Son didn't do a very good job. I don't think I'm willing to say that, knowing who He is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it. It's not good for your health. And Jesus Christ is above all. That's the the force of of what he has said uh, in the uh, last half of verse 2 through verse 4. Other points. Jesus is unique. Would you not agree? There is nobody like him. In the last couple of weeks, I have a friend who has a, a very, very fine antique automobile that belonged to the king of Bahrain. And it has 7,000 miles. I can tell you, it's a beautiful car. But it's not the only one. It's not the only one. (laughs) Jesus is not one among many. He is not even one among few. He is the only one. That's what this text is saying. There is no one that fills this bill. There is no one that meets this job description other than Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what leader, you may say, of what religious sect. You have to say, I would have to say of them, do they surpass the qualifications of Jesus? Can you say God has spoken in them fully and finally? Can you say they are the precise and perfect revelation of the character and the glory of God? I don't think so. Jesus is unique. He is the only one, and we ought to entrust ourselves to him. If that is true, and I would certainly hope we would all say amen to that, then it seems to me we have to ask ourselves whether our lives reflect it. How about our checkbook? Does it reflect the fact that Jesus is the only one? Does it reflect the fact that what he has spoken about money is God's authoritative final word to us about how we ought to spend our money? I got to tell you, Jesus says some hard things about money, and our wallets and our checkbooks will reveal how much we believe Him. Our day timer, <laughs> when you look at your uh, at your calendar, does it reflect who Jesus is, how important He is in your time, our priorities, who's first? These verses tell us there's only one who's first. He ought to get the ultimate priority. Our thoughts, our meditations, are they of Him? If they're not, they're lesser thoughts. Not that we don't have to deal with the realities of life, but the highest thoughts are thoughts that have Him as the center, our reading. Nothing wrong with the paper, internet news, whatever. But that's not the final word. The Bible is the final word. And conversations our devotion our worship man i was thinking about this a friend of mine emailed me and said he's going to be starting to preach on hebrews in the spring somebody said yeah right after you finished well i don't know about that but he said that in in, in their church when they had preached through a book before they had asked the congregation to memorize the book not one person to memorize it all but individuals to memorize each chapter and and uh and they had a worship service in which all they did was recite the book and so said it was one of the most unique uh, times that they have had but think about these verses that we've read as we come to the Lord's supper i mean how you could take weeks on one of these statements could you not well, if you think when we come to observe the Lord's supper and to worship him we're short on material you better check the text we got a lot of things to worship him for Our fellowship, this is really interesting to me, but Hebrews is really big on this. Hebrews is not for Lone Ranger Christians. It's for joining together, remembering the gathering together of the saints on numerous occasions. Shall we call it, I hadn't thought of it until now, let's call it group health. There is a sense in which the health of individuals is tied to the health and the ministry of the group. I believe we're going to see that in Hebrews. Our obedience. Do we hear Him? Hear Him in the sense of not only listen, but obey. That's what this text tells us. And do we endure in, in suffering? That's what this says. Here's my last thought. Somebody mentioned Exodus 32, and I found it interesting that several of the texts that had, that I had been pondering had been mentioned this morning in exodus chapter 32 in that incident where israel worships the golden calf i think you could say that god chose to stake his glory his reputation on his ability to fulfill his promises to israel right and so it didn't matter that israel failed in one sense it doesn't matter but it didn't matter so far as god was concerned his glory was at stake he finished what he started I was thinking about standing up this morning and going to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Why? Because God's glory is attached to his finishing what he starts. In, in As I look at these beginning verses of Hebrews, I would say, God chose to stake his glory on the Son's ability to fulfill all of his purpose's for Him and through Him. Would you not say that's true? And i got to tell you, folks, if I were the Father, I wouldn't entrust those to just anybody. That's why He is the Son. He is God Himself. He is the exact expression of who God is. He is the Creator and the Sustainer of this world. He is the One who made satisfaction for sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Nobody can do that. And the gospel is saying this to us. God entrusted his purposes to the son. And the gospel says we ought to entrust our lives to him for eternal life. If God entrusted all of his work and staked it on him, then surely we can trust, entrust our lives to him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the assurance of eternal life, for the ability to live a life that's pleasing to him. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, then these verses haven't really come home to you yet. But this is saying the living God took on human flesh, paid the penalty for sinners, so that those who trust in him might live forever. And these truths are the most blessed truths we hold as Christians. And they are the things that are the anchor for our soul, the basis for our perseverance, and the motivation for studying Hebrews. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this text. What a magnificent way you have addressed the majesty of the Son. Father, we do not esteem him as we ought. Help us to see him as he is. Help us to study this book. Help us to understand its message for us in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.